morning. It is a privilege and an honor to, to stand up here. and I don't know what I'm doing, but the Holy Spirit does, so you're in good hands. Uh, we are in the final, our ninth week of a series we've entitled Roots, and throughout the summer we've gone through, we've looked at the history of the New Testament church, because we believe that if we look at the history of the New Testament church through two lenses, one is what it meant to those folks, and try to kind of come in touch with the feelings of what they were going through, that we might be able to look, through, look at that example and look use another lens, and that is, what does it mean? Is there anything that's relevant for us today that we can apply? And if you've ever read the Bible or been exposed to the Bible, you know that there's a lot to apply and a lot to learn. And uh, there's, there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Today, we're going to get through nine of them. And I thought, well, maybe I can cover the other However many, 18, what do you think? I said, no, by 3 a.m. these people be throwing rocks at me or the popcorn be flying, movie be playing in the background. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at chapter 9, but we aren't going to just kind of drop the series there. I'm very excited. We're very excited about what we're offering in the next couple of weeks. We are offering some very gifted teachers are going to take each subsequent chapter week by week, and they're going to post the notes, the lesson up there, Uh, in our online community, and you can go up there and not only go through the lesson, you can ask questions, so it'll be an interactive kind of thing, which I know you will do. I don't even ask if you will, and if you're visiting with us and you don't know how to do that, look in your program. Uh, There's a thing called e-news in there, or ask somebody here, one of the staff members and one of the folks, and they'll tell you a little bit more, but be looking in your programs and your e-news for that because we're excited about that. I want to begin by uh, just sharing a little bit about my father. My father, Fernandez, obviously I'm Latin, and at the risk of, you know, broad brushing a stereotype, my dad, uh, he's, he was great. I love my dad. Uh, he passed a number of years ago, but my dad, uh, you know, in the Latin culture, how can I say this, the loudest person wins, Volume uh, carries a lot of weight, but my dad, you know, it's just natural. You know, it'd be you talk with your hands a lot, and you talk really, really loud. Uh, I think Rob was kind, and he said it's passion. I think it's part of the, you know, the genetic makeup. But nonetheless, my dad was a very passionate man, but he had quite the temper. So whenever that temper flared up, it even went up louder. You know, the volume just kind of cranked up, and uh, it happened quite a bit. Because my dad used to, you know, get mad quite a bit over the silliest things. And unfortunately, you know, I come about it honestly because we're from the same genetic pool. Well, I remember my mom telling this story because my dad especially would lose it in the car. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. But I remember, uh, I don't remember, my mom tells me this, but one particular day, who knows what happened, somebody was going too slow for his liking or somebody cut him in or didn't let him in or whatever, my dad went off. And my sister and I were little bitty kids driving around my, in, in Miami and we're in the back seat flopping back and forth because back then you didn't use seat belts. And we were back there and my dad goes on this th- tirade and, and, and then it lasts and everybody's quiet and then eventually it passes. His bark was a lot worse than his bite. But my mom claims that as a five-year-old, I said something like, Mom, in Spanish, I said, Mom, when I grow up, I don't want to be like that. 
Now, I don't know what business a five-year-old has of saying that. I don't even know if I said it. I take my mom's word for it. She has no reason to lie. But if I said it, I said it because that was a moment that resonated in my heart that I didn't quite understand, but it altered my life. And a funny thing is I looked throughout my life. I got a temper, like I told you, and I know no one here can relate. Of course, it's just me. But whenever I get to that point, you know, it goes up from green to yellow and red. I, I had something in me kind of breathe, you know, like, you know, pregnant woman. You know, you do that, and you lower the blood pressure, and you calm down. And I think it might be related to back way back then, and I saw something that altered my life. We all can point back to decisions or, or events that happened, whether they happened to us or other people, that altered our lives and caused us to make decisions for our lives. They could be good. Unfortunately, it could be bad. But there's no doubt that they alter our lives. And today, we're going to look at a, an event that changed, altered radically the life of one man. And that one man indirectly affected probably everyone in this room. That was the Apostle Paul. The conversion of the Apostle Paul, where he, we see him change. And Paul was known as the uh, apostle to the Gentiles. That's just another word for anybody who wasn't born a Jew. And that, unless you're Jewish by birth, that would include you and me. He had more to do with the spreading of the gospel than anybody other than Jesus. He wrote over half of the New Testament. And so this is a very significant event that I think is so important that it's mentioned three times in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at the first account. And I'm going to ask you, if you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, you want to follow along, you can raise your hand. The ushers uh, can come forward and give you one. That's our gift to you. We, we believe it's God's Word. It shows it's, it's, it's a book to take home, write it, highlight it, you know, crinkle the pages and eat it up because it is God's way of communicating His love to us and we believe every word in it. Um, and before I jump into the text in chapter 9, i got to give you a little bit of background. Uh, we, you know, this is unfair because we can't cover it all, and obviously it's not exhaustive, but basically the church exploded in growth, in boldness, the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what they were doing. They weren't organized. They didn't have a, a movie theater to meet in. They were just doing everything by the seat of their pants. The apostles were going, hey, let's try this. Everything was working. God was behind it. It really is the acts of the Holy Spirit, not the acts of the apostles. It's called Holy Spirit was driving it. So as this was going on, the religious establishment of the day obviously caught, caught wind of this, and it threatened them. It threatened them as it does anything new. But not only did it threaten them because it was, it was gaining momentum and, and rolling and growing and attracting people, but it threatened them because it claimed that this Jesus, this Jewish carpenter that they had crucified, was the Messiah, was the promised one in their history, and they wouldn't accept that. They didn't buy it. As a matter of fact, they said it was bogus. And then they got really mad because people started saying, you're responsible. It's my words. And so they had the apostles arrested and flogged and everything else. And last week, we heard for the first time of a person dying for the name of Jesus. The first martyr, that, that means someone who dies for the faith in New Testament history, a guy named Stephen 
a guy who was Greek. He wasn't even Jewish by birth. Yet he stands before the Sanhedrin, which was the religious ruling party of of the Jews, the high muckety-mucks, the smart guys. And he stands there and he gives the longest message that you find in the book of Acts, this sermon, and he uses their history, beginning from Abraham all the way to Jesus, to point out, hey, these are my words, by the way, and you guys blew it. You're a bunch of stubborn, stiff-necked folks. Now, that isn't easy to hear even when you are a stubborn, stiff-necked folk. And we've all met people who really believe something and are dogmatic and and I mean, really try to convince you to change your mind. They say, you know, and they, they might even be unreasonable and unflinching, but, but it stops there. You walk away. Now, if you walk, if you run into someone who believes it so much that they're, if you don't agree with them, they're going to kill you, that's a different thing. And that's what this group was. The Sanhedrin and the Jews of the day, they were going to stamp this out, and they killed Stephen to prove him, and, and they didn't kill him by lethal injection. They did what Jewish law commanded them to do. They dragged him out of the city. They took him to a place and and stoned him. Now, stoning wasn't just throwing a couple pebbles on him and knocking him out, and then he was dead, taking his pulse. They They would take the offender to the top of a hill, to a cliff. It had to be at minimum 12 feet high. They would push him over, and if the fall didn't kill him, then the witnesses would come, and they would throw the stones. And if that didn't kill him, then the rest of the village would come, and they'd finish throwing the stones. Essentially, they bashed his brains in. Horrible form of death. And all the while, we we heard last week that there was a young Pharisee standing in the corner. And all the people who were doing the stunning would come and lay their clothes at his feet, probably so they wouldn't get blood on him. But scholars tell us it might have something to do with the fact that they were showing that that guy was in charge of that execution. He was standing giving approval, and his name was Saul. That was his Jewish name. His Roman name was Paul. He would go on to become the Apostle Paul. So how do we get from there to a guy who wrote over half of the New Testament? We're going to look at that today. After Stephen was killed, the people did what probably you and I would do if somebody kills one of us. They headed for the hills. They scattered. They The church was scattered, but as consistent with the book of Acts, we see a theme that the church continued to grow. Even when they scattered, they talk about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit would make it grow, and it was growing, it was growing, it was growing. And as it grew, guess what? These people got madder and madder. And you know who got maddest of all? Saul. And we pick it up. Chapter 9, verse 1 in the book of Acts. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what they called Christ followers, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So here we see, Murderous threats. He's, you know, I'm gonna get you, sucker. You know that kind of anger. I'm gonna stamp this thing out. Here we find a young, tenacious, volatile, fire. We call him fired up in our language in high school today. He's fired up, you know. And and we see this guy, and he's got all this 
passion, this energy to stamp this out. And he's, throwing, he's, 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 he's saying, you know what? Not only is he fiery, not only is he tenacious, but he's smart. As a matter of fact, he was, it was said that he studied under Gamaliel, which was the, the, uh, the foremost Pharisee of his day. It was an honor to study there. He was bright and he was smart. So if he was going to stamp this thing out, he was going to do it methodically. Later on in the book of Acts, he says he was obsessed with doing it. He was convinced that God wanted him to do this. And he went to the synagogue. He said, give me all letters you've intercepted. Give me all letters. They got names of people who are doing this. And I'm going to go from city to city, town to town, and I'm going to, knock, I'm going to, I'm going to wipe this thing out. I'm going to drag these men and women. You've got to be bad if you're dragging women. What happened to the kids? He didn't care. He'd be dragging everybody out. He's taking them back to Jerusalem, and they were either going to recount their faith and get in line, or they were going to die the death of Stephen. When I think about this and what relevance it has for us today, uh, I think my first point would, would come in the form of a question. Here we see a guy who's so convinced about something. And the question is simply this, how could something that feels so right be so wrong? How could something that feels so right be so wrong? You know, we've touched on this throughout. But you ask yourself that question. We can be wrong about a lot of things. All of us have been wrong. Of course, the front two rows with the young people, they are never wrong. But as you get older, you realize that you're wrong about as much as you're right, if you're honest with yourself, right? And we can be wrong, and we will be wrong about a lot of things. But there's one thing that we have to be really careful about. And that is being wrong about God, who he is. And I ask myself how that happens. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to, the, to a man, but in the end it leads to death. I don't think that's in the Bible as a threat. You get in line, you're going to burn in hell forever. I don't think that's in there for that because God is love. I think everybody dies a physical death, but there is another death. There's a death that we die apart from God. We aren't able to be with God forever. That, that is the ultimate death. And I think what we can learn from, it, from this is that we can miss that. How do we miss that? I think because God gets distorted. Who is God? My life growing up, God was a lot of things. And I would take piece parts and patch up a, a quilt and see God and say, okay, he's this, this, oh, but he's not this. And, and before you know it, you're just confused. I bag the whole thing. I can't do this. It's exhausting. Who is God? I think culture has a way of distorting God. We started school in Wake County. A lot of people saying God is this and God is that, but insecure, not knowing, trying to be this, people pleasing, all this kind of stuff. We turn on the TV, we see smart people or celebrities that we think are smart, and, we, and they're, they're, well, getting in touch with the inner you, and, and God is love, so he wouldn't do this and that, and we have to accept this and that and the other thing. You know, that's a dangerous thing. That's why it's so important to not buy into the distortion 
of, of what culture can do and paint this picture of God as he really is not. And also, as, in, as is in Paul's case, there is a religious distortion of God. Some of it for me used to be, okay, God is, I can't do these things, and I need to be doing more of these things. And I was all I was schizophrenic, you know, all within 10 seconds, I was on either side, you know. And before you know it, you hyperventilate, you pass out, and you give up. That is not God. God is love. He promises us peace. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, all that stuff. I, I, that's not what my experience was a lot of times. So even religion, tradition, can distort God. That's why it's so important that we ask Him that we seek Him, that we take time to investigate this. And we'll never figure it out. No one can know God, but we can get closer to the truth. Here we have a guy, a young Pharisee who was killing people, thought he was doing what was right. He wasn't playing church. God wasn't just a little part of his life that he accommodated. It was the center of his life, and he was killing people. He was right. God was with him. Man, he was so wrong. How could that happen? Because just... It, because it feels right doesn't make it right. But it's always the case, and praise God for this. God loves everybody, even murderous Pharisees and recovering hypocrites. He loves everybody. So God says, listen, I'm going to intervene and get your attention, pal. And he does so in a very dramatic fashion as we pick it up in verse 3 of Acts chapter 9. Paul's on the way. He says to, to Damascus, and as he neared Damascus on the journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So here, this Pharisee, on a six-day journey, it was a six-day walk from Jerusalem, about 175 miles, he was on the way to Jerusalem walking. Sometimes you hear some accounts of him being on a horse. There's really no horse mentioned in there. He was on a, his high horse probably. But anyway, he was on the way. He was walking with some companions. And on his way, something happens. Something dramatic happens. And it's the light. It, it blinds him. He says, who are you, Lord? And then he re receives a piece of news that is mind-blowing. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That is the oh oh moment of all oh oh moments. Everything you live for, not only was it wrong, it was opposite of wrong, you know. And he gets this news. And I think, what must he felt? Have you ever gotten that oh, oh kind of news? Maybe it comes in the form of a diagnosis from the doctor. 
Maybe it comes from the form as a parent of your child coming up and, and, and telling you some devastating news. Maybe it's a husband saying to a wife, we need to sit down, I need to talk to you and tell you something that's been going on. It comes in all different forms. But one thing is common. All the blood sort of drops down to your toes. Your knees get wobbly. And you think you're going to pass out. You feel like you've been hit in the stomach. This was the ultimate uh-oh moment for this young Pharisee. And he's blinded. He can't see. I don't know about you, but whenever I've received a disturbing piece of news, I don't worry about eating or drinking. I just worry about, I'm trying to make sense out of it all. And I think that happened to him. It says for three days, he didn't eat, he didn't drink a thing. I wonder what he was going through those three days. I used to think, well, you know, that that hard drive was just replaying in the faces of all the people he killed and everything else. And I think there was some of that. We learned, we're, we're going to learn in a minute he was praying through, through that time. That's true too. But you know what? I think he was bearing, I think he was bearing the full weight of God's love. God was forcing his love on Paul. And Paul was, it just didn't compute. It didn't, it doesn't make sense. It's not fair. It's not deserved. I was and he was wrestling with that. God said, I love you. I love you. I love you. Oh, did you know I loved you? No, no. There was no, no, there was no music. There was no TV. There was no distractions. For three days, he lay there blind, thinking. What was he thinking? And I think that leads me to another ap- possible application for today. And that is really bad falls can have really good results. Well, it doesn't feel like it at the time. It feels like you're going to die. But I wish I could say most of the lessons I've learned in life was because I've been so awesome. (laughs) You know, it's just me. No, 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 no. Most lessons are learned through through difficulties, personal difficulties. Uh, observation. I, I've done a number of funerals and I've seen the strange thing, as sad as it is, it can be an incredible time because people come together, they get beneath the surface, they hug, they reconcile, they cry together, they let their hearts be shown. And a weird thing, it's this bittersweet thing because hard times, whether it, you're on the way down or whether you've hit the bottom and you're rubbing your backside, you're going, ouch! our great time to learn if we let it happen. There's a great fable that I came across with. That's just a story years ago that I think illustrates this point. It's about this little bird who's flying home for the winter and, he, and it's so cold that he's freezing. And, and as he goes across, his wings are frozen. He falls, boom, down on the ground. He's freezing to death. And he happens to fall in a cow pasture. And as he's, as he's laying there in a cow pasture and, he, and he's about to die, a cow walks by and drops a pile of manure on him. Excuse me for the being explicit. Well, a little bird goes, great, I'm dying, and now I'm laying in a pile of manure. Does it get any better than this? But a funny thing happens. He starts to feel tingling in his wings. 
And, and he, he notices that all of a sudden his wings are thawing out and he realizes, wow, this is really, I, I'm not going to die. And he gets so happy and he does what birds do. And you know what they do? They sing. So he starts to sing. Well, a cat happens to be walking by. He follows the sound of this singing, gets the pile of manure, digs through, and he eats the bird. It's the end of the story. I got your attention, don't I? There's a couple morals in that having to do with hard times. Number one is not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Number two is not everyone who digs you out is your friend. And number three is If you ever find yourself laying in a pile of manure, sometimes the best thing to do is be quiet. Learn whatever lesson there is to be learned. Not only does God say, listen, I'm going to take you off this merry-go-round, Paul, Pharisee, and make you... Stop and think and listen and, 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 and really reevaluate and take spiritual inventory of who I really am. I want you to know. I want you to seek me. But, but God says, I'm going to do another thing to get your attention. And that's where we pick it up in verse 10 of Acts chapter 9. We, the story continues. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest on all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. And to his credit, Ananias went. And I was thinking about this, and we don't, we don't know anything about Ananias other than this, really. But I was wondering if Ananias ever had a family member that Paul, Saul, was responsible for dragging away. I was, I was wondering if Ananias was a friend of Stephen's who had been stoned. I was wondering if Ananias maybe was on that, that death list that, that, that Saul showed up with to drag people out of their homes. We don't know that. And I was thinking, how does this, how can we kind of fast forward and make it relevant to today? And I thought, who is the most despicable character that you can think of? And I went through all the historical characters. I said, okay, if you're an American citizen today in this room, there's a name that comes up for most of us, and that is Osama bin Laden, right? So maybe. There was no internet back then. There was no way of communication. But somehow, Saul's reputation preceded him, and he was so bad that everybody knew. It would kind of be like if you got a phone call today from, from the State Department and said, hey, Osama bin Laden has just found Christ. And we're going to fly you into Afghanistan, drop you in a parachute, and you're going to meet him and his cronies in some obscure location in a cave somewhere in Afghanistan, and you're going to preach the gospel to him. How do you feel about that? Probably the way Hannah and I felt. You know, when you, when you get a piece of news that is really like somebody asks you to, you're in a group doing homework or something, and, and, and somebody asks you to do public speaking, and most people are, I'd rather 
pull all my teeth with no Novocaine and to go in front of people, you know, that kind of thing. And, they, and the, the group says, well, get a representative from each group and go forward, and you're going to be the one responsible for it. And they go, hey, you'd be great. Why don't you do it? And you, inside you're going, there's no way I want to get in front of this group. That's what's going on, this internal conversation. There's no way. But it comes out much nicer. It comes out differently. You go like, oh, I think you're much better at it. <laughs> I think in an IS, it was one of those deals, what? Are you kidding me? There is no way. Oh, Lord, by the way, have you heard rep- the reports about this man? What? I'm God of the universe. I don't know everything that's going on. But I think that's what's cool about the Bible. You read it and you go, wow, you know, this deals, this is my zip code. I can relate to this. It might take a little digging around, but it's relevant. Ananias responded like any one of us would, but yet he was obedient to God's call, which I think can point to another relevant uh, point as applied to us today, and that is this, that God uses others to help restore our sight. God will use other people. You know what's significant as you look through the book of Acts and as you continue to look through the book of Acts, as I know you will, that every conversion in the book of Acts involved another person other than the person being converted. Every conversion had used another person to help that person come to a faith. Is that because God has to? No, that's part of God's plan. Relationship. Story about a Chinese, uh, about a missionary went to China. He was an eye doctor, and he went to China, and he goes, and he, and he performs some operations, cataract operations, to a farmer in a distant land. And for the first time in a long time, this farmer can see. Well, the next morning, this uh, missionary is in his house, and he looks out the window. And when he looks out the window, he sees this guy coming down the road, this farmer who he had restored his sight through the surgery. And this farmer's got a rope. He's holding a rope that he tied around himself. And there's a long list of men and women behind him, and he's kind of walking along. And he walks up, and, and the doctor's wondering, what the heck is going on? He goes, I said, what's going on? And this farmer, this simple farmer says, you know what? I went back to my village yesterday, and I told the people that I can see. And they said, well, well how, did, how, did they rest- how did your sight get restored? And I, I didn't know exactly how. I, I just said, well, I don't, I don't really know. All I know is I can see, but I can take you to the guy that'll help restore your sight. And that's why they're all here, to see you. That's kind of like our experience if we're Christ followers. That's kind of like conversion. God will use other people. And you, know, you ask somebody, what does it mean? And sure, there are things that you can give them steps along the way to help them. But you know what? We don't really know what we're doing. We're just, we're not bringing them to a church. We're not bringing them to an ideology. We're not bringing them to rules. We're not bringing them to do's and don'ts. You know what we're, we're bringing them to? We're bringing them to Jesus. He's going to restore their sight, but he's going to use other people to do it. That's part of his plan. We pick up the story as we go on, and Ananias being obedient to uh, God's voice, he goes in there, he lays hands, scales fall off of Saul's eyes, he's able to see, in the, and, and uh, we pick up the story in verse 18 of Acts chapter 9. 
It says, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and amazed, asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem and among those who call on this name? So Paul, Ananias walks in, he's able to see. What's the first thing he does? He gets baptized. Again, we see patterns in, in the book of Acts that are important. One of them is when a person comes and puts their faith in Christ, believes in Christ, they repent of their sins. Three days, I think Paul did a good job of that. He was, that was the longest conversion in the New Testament, by the way. But three days, he's thinking about things. His life is changing. And then the first thing he does when he gets up is baptized. That's the pattern of the book of Acts. That's what we believe. And we see this man, he repents, which means that he, he, he's going metanoia. He's going that way, he changes to go that way. He no longer talks the same way, spews the same stuff, believes the same stuff. He's a different man. It's a radical, radical thing. But what catches my attention in this verse that I think can apply to you and me, it says that at once he goes and begins to preach about Jesus. At once. There was no period of time where he went back to Jewish Bible college to straighten out his theology. There was no church class that he took to make sure he was doing it right. There was no, uh, let me check with the apostles and make sure everything's kosher over there. No, he just kind of went once. Now, I know that Paul had a history, and he, he knew what was going on uh, theologically from a Jewish perspective. But this whole Jesus thing, he was, a, he was in diapers. He was three days old in his knowledge of Jesus. But yet, he put it all together, and he just, he just went. Not all of us can, are gifted in, in certain areas in a public sort of way but all of us can minister if i were to ask you a question what does it mean to be in a ministry would you ask would you answer it by saying well you know it's means somebody who's supported by the church who does music for the church works part-time for the church or something is that what you would say that's an incorrect view it really is anybody who follows christ it could be someone who's just made the decision or someone who's walking along, learning to live in God's love for the rest of their life. But the question to be asked is, is there anything holding me back from using whatever gift I have? If that is like making dinner for people who are sick, if that is feeding the poor, if that is helping someone uh, fix their house or babysitting so other people could come to know more and grow more in their faith. Whatever it is, we all have gifts and God's given it to each of us and we could use it. What am I waiting for? To know more? It's kind of like marriage. Do you ever really know enough to get married? Do you? I, I don't think so. You really find out what it's about after you get married. It's It's awesome. But you learn as you go. It's on the job training. That's, that's what a walk with God is. That is learning to, to walk in his love and growing and sharing it with other people and using our gifts to be in a demonstration of Christ's love to this world, whether it's within a church or whether it's out in our community. But these guys, 
The Jews who heard Paul, they were scratching their heads going, what in the world is cotton picking going on here? This guy has flip-flopped. It's not like he changed his hairstyle. He is different. He is radically different. They didn't get it. As a matter of fact, it bothered them so much that they did what was typical of religious people. They wanted to kill him. So they, the, 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 the Christ followers, disciples there, had to sneak him out of Jerusalem, and he, I mean out of Damascus, and he went on his way to Jerusalem. Well, guess what happens when he goes to Jerusalem? The Christ followers there go, uh-uh. I'm not going to read all this for the sake of time, but the Christ followers go, uh-uh, I ain't going next to him. You know, this guy is bad news. He's just faking it or whatever. They were afraid of him. So he's caught in this middle ground. The Jews want to kill him, and the Christ followers don't want to accept him. Luckily, there was a guy who exercised his gift named Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He, his gift was he just encouraged people. You ever been around somebody like that? Just make you feel better about yourself. And he stepped in the gap, and he introduced Paul to the, uh, the rest of the disciples there, and the rest is history, two-thirds of the New Testament. And the last scripture I want to share with you briefly is one in which Paul goes back, and he compares his old life to his new life. And he goes back, and he goes through his resume, which was pretty impressive. And he says the following in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ, I consider them rubbish. I'm going to ask the band to come forward because we're going to hear a song in a minute. But as Paul looks at his past life and he looks at his resume and he says, look, okay, you guys want to, you guys want to compare resumes? Look at mine. And he lists off things that in the Jewish mind were beyond impressive, impeccable. And he says, you know what? All these things that were so important to me, that past life that I lived for has radically changed. It's all a loss. And he says something very interesting. I now consider them rubbish. The Greek word for rubbish there can be translated as animal excrement. He says, you know, all this fancy schmancy stuff over here, it's like a pile of, you know what, got to be careful, by the side of the road. That's what it means to me. That's because I understand God's love now. This wasn't a picture of a man who was a new and improved version of the old man. This was a man who was, his life was completely obliterated in a very dramatic fashion and he was born again. I was there for the birth of my three children. And there were a lot of emotions. But the best way I describe it is it was violent. <laughs> and, you know, people would ask me, what was it like? And, and, and I would make sure my wife wasn't around. And I'd joke, oh, I wasn't too bad because she would swing and I'd have to duck, you know. 
It was radical. My life changed. There was life where there was none before. It was awesome. Paul was a man who was born again, and I would argue a man that for the first time in his life was able to live again, traded in the rules for the grace, traded in the guilt for the love, and then was the first advocate and the loudest voice decrying the love of God. As we close out our series in the book of Acts, and you continue online to study the book of Acts, I want us to listen to the words of the following song that I I believe, I love this song, they would express Paul's, many of Paul's emotions for the rest of his life, and I pray that these same words can express the same emotion in you and me.